We are in part three of a series called Startled by Grace. We're talking about the grace of God. My, my hope is that we learn some important information, but way more than that, way more than that, that we are receiving the grace of God into our lives, that we are living a life of grace, not by our own strength and effort and power and energy, but instead receiving God's grace and favor in our lives. And so this affects everything from our ability to know him in the first place. It affects our eternal destiny. It's by God's grace that we are eternally saved. But it's by his grace that we walk out each and every day. That same grace that saves and rescues me from my sin, that assures me of an eternity with him in heaven. That same grace is available because God is present in my life. I no longer have to struggle through this life on my own. I am not alone. He is with me. So I want to do a brief review of the last couple of weeks, and then we'll pray and jump into this this morning. Um, we've been studying this through the lens of the story of Noah's flood. It's the first time in the scripture where the word grace shows up, and we're seeing what we can learn from that story about God's grace. And so on the first week, we looked at everything leading up to the flood. And we looked at how grace showed up because, number one, God was present. Noah walked with God. There was a personal relationship. God is not distantly judging us or observing us. He draws near to us, and he wants ongoing relationship. And so grace was available because God was available. He was present in Noah's life. Secondly, we saw that grace speaks the truth. It encourages, it warns, it gives direction and so grace speaks truth. It carries us through even the floods of life. And then so finally, that leads to the third point that we looked at. Grace empowers us. It's grace that gets us through the actual floods of life that we experience. Yes, there was a, a, a big literal flood. Yes, um, there, there is the need for ultimate salvation from, from judgment that comes. Yes, absolutely. But, but we live a real life that comes with ups and downs and floods along the way. Some that we cause because we blow it. Some floods in life that we didn't ask for, that we just find ourselves in. But it is God's grace that sees us through those hard seasons and gives us a fresh start. So that's a little bit of a recap of week one. Then last week, we looked at what happens when the flood is here, man. Like the flood has come. And the bottom line is to experience God's grace we've got to have humility. We've got to have humility. And so we looked at that in three specific ways. Number one, instead of me sitting in the position of being the judge and decider in my life, I give that seat up to him. And I begin to honor God as the ultimate source. He's the judge. He's the king. And so I let him speak to me as opposed to me holding him accountable. That might seem obvious, right? He's the creator. He's the king. But often, if we're not careful, this mentality can creep in where I'm going, well, God, why would you do that? And you're not allowed to do that. And who are you to do that? Who are you to judge? Who are you to send this flood? But he's the king and he's a good king. And so I give up that seat to be the judge and decider in my life. And I let him have it. That takes humility. Secondly, it takes humility to, to acknowledge and realize that I need saving that I need saving. I, I need to be honest about the, the results and consequences of sin in my life. It destroys me. It harms others. And it takes humility to acknowledge, God, I need your grace. 
I won't recognize the beauty and the power of God's grace if I don't realize how much I need it. When we weaken and cheapen grace, it loses its impact. We are in need of the grace of God, and that takes humility. And then finally, the solution that he provides in Jesus, that requires humility. To say, God, I'm trusting you and not my own effort. And we took note of the fact that, you know, there was one way into the ark through that door. And it was God that shut that door. And once Noah was in the ark, there was no rudder and steering wheel. That takes a lot of humility to get in that boat and just say, okay, God, I'm trusting you to see me through. But that's what it's like with Jesus. We trust him with our hope and our life and our salvation. We give it to him and we relinquish control. And so it requires humility on our part to experience the wonderful grace of God. So that's the last couple of weeks in a nutshell. I maybe just saved you, you know, like 40 minutes for each of those sermons. So if you missed the last couple of weeks, there you go. Maybe next week I'll just give you a little five minutes of this and you could leave now and not have to listen to this one. I don't know. I'm kidding. <laughs> Christina's leaving. She's like, yeah, I'm out of here. I'm kidding. I'm sure she's helping the kids and doing a great job like she always does. All right, well, let's, let's pray one more time together, um, if nothing else, so I can refocus. And, um, and all jokes aside, let's, let's invite God's presence to come and be our guide and our teacher this morning as we open up his word. And so, Father, we come before you one more time. God, I thank you that you are here, that you are present in our midst. God, I thank you that you've been declaring over us this morning as we've sung. God, you've been declaring over us your great love. God, would you make that more evident to us as we open up your word? God, as we understand this new life that we're invited into, a life of grace. Um, God, I pray we would receive it. We'd enjoy it. God, we would step into all that you have for us. God, that we would dare to believe that you're this good. That we'd have enough faith to believe you are a good God. And so, Lord, make this word come alive in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we are in part three. This is now on the other side of the flood. The flood is coming to an end, and Noah and his family are about to experience a whole new world. And so we're stepping into that part of the story this morning. So we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 8, verses 1 through 4 is where we're going to start. Verses 1 through 4. But God remembered Noah... And all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. That is quite a flood if it takes 150 days for it to dry up and drain away. And then the Bible says very specifically in verse 4 that in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And so at this moment, the flood is coming to an end and Noah and his family and the animals that God has preserved are about to experience a whole new world. A world they've never seen. A world that's never existed before. It's gone through the devastation of the flood. It's also gone through an incredible cleansing. It's a fresh new start. And they stand at the cusp of that. Now, it would be very easy to move quickly into what transpires next. But I, I live in such a way, and I've seen this ring true in my life, 
that every detail in the Bible matters. And it's there for a reason. If we'll slow down and pay attention, we find out really cool things. And so the Bible was specific enough to tell us the exact day when the ark came to rest on the mountaintop. And so I want to unpack this a little bit. So are, are we willing to be Bible nerds for the next three minutes or so? Yeah? Can we put on our thinking caps a little bit? All right, so let me walk you through this. So it says that it was on the seventh month of the year, on the 17th day of the month, that the ark came to rest on the mountaintop. Now, to understand the significance of what we're about to unpack, we need to know something. There are two different calendars to the Jewish people. There is the initial calendar that has just kind of always been. It's the one in existence here in Genesis, right? But there is a second calendar that came into being at the birth of the nation, when they were coming out of Egypt and God, they had the first Passover and then they, they begin to go into the wilderness and they're being established as a people and as a nation, God says, this is a significant moment in your history. And so we're going to reset the calendar. And so this month today, as you are moving out of Egypt, that's now going to be the first of the year because we're going to remember and celebrate the birth of this nation and, the, and, the, and what came through things like the Passover that led to them moving into the promised land. So in the Genesis calendar, this month that we're talking, well, first of all, let me back up. In the Genesis calendar, the first month of the year was in the fall, in the fall. When God reinstituted the calendar at the birth of the nation, the first month of the year moved to the spring. And so the seventh month became the first month, the month of, of Nisan. So now in this story, it's the seventh month of the year in Genesis, but if we looked ahead into the future, it would be the first month of the year. Are you guys tracking with me so far? I know we're being pretty detailed here. If I'd thought a little more in advance, we could have put some details up on the screen to help everybody follow along, but hang in there with me. Y'all are doing great. Now, this spring month is really cool for a couple of reasons. It includes several important feasts. One of them is the Passover, the Feast of Passover, um, where they remember that by the shed blood of the lamb, they were covered and the angel of death passed over them. And then a few days later, they celebrate the feast of first fruits. So there's just several of these cool spring feasts that are celebrated in this month. Now, let's fast forward several thousand years. Many scholars believe that the year that Jesus was crucified, that the Passover was on the 14th day of that month. Y'all tracking with me? All right. So Jesus, our Passover lamb, well, if you don't know what that is, I will do a teaching, I promise on that. But there are several things that pointed to Jesus in the Old Testament. And one of them was that the sacrifice of a lamb and its shed blood covered the people's sins. And that was meant to be a picture of the ultimate lamb who was coming one day, who would fully pay for our sins. So scholars believe that Jesus gave his life, that he died on Passover as the Passover lamb, and that would have been the 14th day of that month. Well, if you're in the grave for three days and you rise again on a Sunday morning, they know, they can go back and look at the calendar that that Sunday morning that Jesus rose from the grave was the 17th day of in Genesis what would have been the seventh month. Now, I don't know if you caught that, 
But what that means is when the survivors of the flood, when the ark came to rest on the mountaintop to the date, it's the same day that Jesus rose again and resurrected new life. What an unbelievable picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And so I want us to see this in the New Testament for just a minute because Jesus is called something very specific by Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. And he's writing to encourage them because some of them are being told this lie that there is no resurrection life and that their life in Jesus is just while they're on this planet and then you just kind of cease to exist, that there is no raising from the dead. And some of them were beginning to struggle with, well, what about our loved ones who've already died and gone before? And so Paul writes to assure them that resurrection life is real and true. And so we're going to pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He says, listen, if following Jesus is just about living out some rules he gave us, that's not the point. It's a futile way of living. If we miss the resurrection of Jesus, we miss the whole point and power of the cross. The cross was to make a way for our sins to be forgiven and for us to move into right relationship with God. Yes, it was that incredible payment for us. Yes, but it didn't stop there. We have eternal hope because that Jesus rose again from the grave. And so Paul now describes in this way, he says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the what? First fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That Sunday, the 17th of the year, that was the start of the Jewish feast of first fruits. What a beautiful picture of who Jesus is for us and what he's doing on our behalf. His resurrection life is the first fruits. It's the picture of the rest of the harvest that's coming. That's you and I. Because he rose again from the grave, we can be assured that we will rise again from the grave. Let's not get so familiar with that that it just rolls off our back like it's no big deal. We have eternal hope in Jesus. As the beauty of the grace of God is that we have resurrection life and we see it pictured here right at the dawn of human history. In fact, there's a brand new fresh start. The world's being remade. Noah and his family are moving into a whole new life. That's the power of God's grace giving us a resurrected life. And what's our role? It's the same role that Noah and his family had. What did they do? Well, on the day when the flood was abating, the ark came and it rested on the mountaintop. We get to rest in the resurrection power of Jesus. He's done it. He sees us through the flood. He sees us onto the other side of it. And we just get to rest in what he has done. That's the power of the grace of God. There are some things we're going to explore this morning 
where grace operates in our life and we choose to participate with it. We put some things into action. But that is never about earning something. It's never about appeasing God. It's about enjoying the new life we get to step into now. It's about getting out of the ark and embracing what God has for us in the new world, in his new life. Grace is first and foremost and always an act of God on our behalf. It's unearned, unmerited favor. It's the blessing of God on our lives. And that's the power of the resurrection. And that's the grace that's available to you and I. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Now, because of that grace, we can rest in him and we can step boldly into a whole new way of life. Man, when we come to Jesus, things change. Things change. And so we're going to look, and I'm going to go through these relatively quickly, but we're going to look at four things that are a part of living in this new world that we step into when we've received the grace of God. And it's his grace that enables us to do all of this. So the first thing, the first thing that grace does in the new world, it's about sacrifice. Genesis chapter 8, verse 18. They're now coming out of the ark. It says in verse 18, So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, this is a fact that is true on, on two levels at least. And this is something beautiful about God's word. It has layers of meaning. At the simplest level, this is just a basic principle of life. Our, our goals the things we're aiming for as we move into our new life, to see those goals accomplished and fulfilled will take sacrifice. How, how many college students do we have in the room this morning? Several, right? There's a bunch in here. Okay. You are currently making sacrifices for your future. I thought I'd get an amen knowing some exams are coming up. <laughs> 20 and under, I don't think y'all say amen in church anymore. That's all right. Okay. Just that's my dumb pastor joke. I've got lots of them. But listen, you are sacrificing years of your life. Why are you doing that? You believe in an unseen future that you have not arrived at yet, but you've got vision. You've got some hope. You've got something you're shooting for. And so you make sacrifices for the future. That is a principle of this life. Not only that, if you love somebody... I don't mean if you enjoy and receive their love. I mean, if you love them, you will sacrifice for them. We make sacrifices for the people that we love for their good and benefit. A part of grace is God inviting us into a life where we understand and embrace that there are practical ways in our life where we're going to be a little bit like Jesus, where we're going to learn from him how to love well by making sacrifices and in order to embrace the new life that is ahead, and in order to love the people well that God has placed in our life. Noah sacrificed a lot for his family. And God saw his family through the flood by the power and grace of God, but by some participation on Noah's part. He built this gigantic ark. 
So there's sacrifice. Now I said there's multiple meanings. At the deeper level, and this is, this is, is so important, the ultimate sacrifice is Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this sacrifice imagery I was just talking about with the Passover lamb. All of these sacrifices in the Old Testament, they were pointing to the sacrifice, the one who loves so well and so ultimately that he made the ultimate sacrifice for those he loved. That's you. Thank God, that's me. He loved us so much that he sacrificed for us so we could experience this new life in him. And so the foundation of our new life in Jesus, experiencing the grace of God, is sacrifice. He's the ultimate sacrifice in my life, and then I can learn from him how to love well by his grace and make sacrifices for others as I step into a life of grace. Is this making sense? Okay, so that's number one. Number two, the second thing that this, this new world was founded upon was not just sacrifice, but promise. It was built on a promise. Genesis 9, we're going to read verses 11 through 15. This is God talking. He says, I establish my covenant with you. Notice who's making the commitment. God to Abraham, or sorry, God to Noah. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all the flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all the flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The second thing that we can be assured of as we step into a new life of grace is the promise and faithfulness of God. He's made promises and he wants us to know you can be assured of it. In fact, I'm giving you a sign. I'm giving you a symbol. When you see this rainbow in the sky, you can be assured that I will take care of you. You can be assured that you will not be flooded again. Listen. You know, we, we see this from our seat here into the future. But man, if you're Noah and you're his family, or maybe you're his, his kids or his grandkids and you've heard the story of this flood and those storm clouds start rolling in and it starts raining, you don't think there might be a little bit of nervousness and fear when you've watched the whole earth be flooded before? I become very grateful for the promises of God. Listen, I don't know about you, but I see storm clouds in my life at times. I see them growing and billowing and they come rolling in and at times it feels like they're not gonna relent. But God is faithful to keep his promises. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. He's promised us an eternal future, but he's promised us present help in our time of trouble. This new life of grace is built upon God's faithfulness to keep his promises. I hope you see the first two things that Noah's experiencing and that we experience when we step into a life of grace, they're based on him and what he does. The Bible says that he who promised is faithful. We can be assured. All right, so now 
we have a part to play. How do we respond to this wonderful grace of God? This beautiful sacrifice of Jesus, the promise and presence of God in our lives. How do we respond? We respond the way Noah did. See, this, this picture wasn't just about sacrifice a minute ago that we looked at. It's about worship. Let's look back at Genesis 8.20, and then we're going to read a couple of additional verses. Genesis 8.20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. Instead, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. What do we do in response to God's grace? We worship him. We worship him. Worship is sacrificial. I'm not a good singer, like, at all. And to, to, to come and sing in general is tough. But beyond that, there's times where my heart's just not there. I'm weary. I'm worn down. But in light of the grace and goodness of God, I'm able to sing out. And listen, worship is so much more than just opening our mouths. That's a physical activity that engages on a deeper level our heart. My life, my heart gets to sing out the grace and goodness of God, no matter the season. And something beautiful happens when we worship God. Look at his response to Noah. There's three really cool things it says. Number one, he took pleasure. He took pleasure in Noah and his family. He loved them. It was like a sweet aroma to him. He, he enjoyed that exchange of, I'm pouring my grace into your life and you're daring to believe that I'm good and you're declaring that back to me. And I take pleasure in this relationship. And so God takes pleasure. Secondly, there's this interesting thing that happens when we worship. It's like, it's like this cycle starts. God's grace is poured into my life. I respond and worship him as God and glorify him and thank him for who he is. And more grace comes. What does he say? He says, every intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. What's he saying? He's saying, I get it. You're going to struggle. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall. But it's not my heavy hand of judgment that's going to be on you any longer. Instead, it's grace. I love you. I'm with you. And I understand your condition. I see your human frailty. I see your struggles and I love you. And so the grace abounds, it continues. And then finally, what a beautiful promise that he's with us in all seasons. Even when the seasons can't make their mind up. He's with us in all seasons, seed time, harvest. Listen, I think that's about more than just the actual seasons of the year. There's times where I'm sowing and I'm not seeing a whole lot of growth. There's times where I'm reaping and enjoying the harvest. There's winter seasons where, man, nothing is happening. There's times of radical growth in the summer where I see, see things blooming and coming to life. In all of those seasons of life that we walk through, he's present and we can worship him because he's good and faithful in all seasons. 
Number four, the fourth thing. I love this. Genesis 9. You could really should read through all of chapter 9, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 and then skip down to 18 and 19. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Go for it, boys. We got we to hear a little bit of life in these stories sometimes. Go for it. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. He's saying, hey, there is a grand adventure in front of you. You have to know these are real people. Some of this was probably really exciting. Man, look at this whole new world. Some of it had to be terrifying. I mean, great. Those animals were fine on the ark, but like once they kind of get let out into the wild, you know, are, are we still good? Is that lion going to pounce on me? Like, what's up? God's saying, go for it. Go on the adventure. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. See what he's saying? He's setting their hearts at ease. You can go on this adventure. You're going to be all right. You might have a tendency to think this is too overwhelming. What this world, what I'm facing, it's so beyond me. I'm afraid. I'm terrified. The beasts that I'm going to encounter are overwhelming. You know, for us, we might not have literal like lions prowling around. But there are intimidating beasts to face in this life. There are overwhelming obstacles to face. But God says, you shouldn't be afraid of them. They should be afraid of you. Because I'm with you. I'm with you and I'm for you. Go for it. Go on the adventure. So the dread of you will be upon them and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Skipping down to verse 18. The sons of Noah went forth from the ark. They were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these people, the whole earth was dispersed. We've got an incredible adventure to live out in this life with him. And parts of that adventure it, it, um, involve exploring and, and going for it, checking out new things, embracing the challenges ahead. Some of it involves responsibility. They're, they're told to be fruitful, to multiply. They're told that they have care of the earth. There's almost a, a reinstilling of, of the thing God told to Adam, right? Have dominion over the earth. It means care for it, protect it. We've, we've got responsibilities, when I'm embracing the grace of God in my life, part of what I do is I look around at, at what's around me. Every single one of us have a sphere of influence. There's people that I influence. Um, there's possessions that I have. I've got a little spot on this planet where I reside. And I get to go on the adventure of learning how to faithfully steward that life. We kind of did a little bit of a series on that back in February. That's this. Go on the adventure empowered by his grace. Don't be overwhelmed by the tasks ahead. Don't be overwhelmed. Your relationships will be challenging at times. Your own heart will cause difficulty and grief along the way. There are obstacles outside of you that will be difficult to face. But by the grace of God, we can face them. By the grace of God, we can go on that adventure and we can be the people he's called us to be and enjoy it along the way. Yes, there's challenges, absolutely. 
but there's also joy when the grace of God is present. Sacrifice, promise, worship, adventure. This is the new life of grace that we get to live by the power of Jesus. I want to I close with a story. You know, I wish the story ended there, but it doesn't. It's, it's interesting. The story of Noah doesn't stop right there. If I were writing the story, I would stop right there, right? Here's this hero, victorious, you know, built this ark with his family. They made it through. They're on the other side. There's a party. There's a rainbow. Like they're embracing the new world. The end, let's move on to the next thing. But that's not where the story ends. It's not where the story ends. Check this out. This is, um, this is in Genesis 9, verses 20 through 25. As they move into the new world, it says, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and he laid uncovered in his tent. He had kind of an embarrassing moment. He got drunk, now he's naked, he's laying there in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both of their shoulders. I hope you, hope you get this visual. Alex, I borrow you sometimes. Do you mind coming up here real quick? All right, so Noah's back here naked, passed out drunk. Uh, this is Bible. I'm, I didn't make up this story. Okay. He's back here somewhere, passed out drunk. We're his two sons. We're not Ham that came out going, dude, dad is like in there. Like. there there's a hint that he's kind of mocking his dad. And so these other two brothers have so much grace for their father that they place the, a blanket on their shoulders. So there'd be like here and here and the blanket's laying like that. And they walked in backwards in unison, not tripping over monitors and laid the blanket over their father. They wouldn't even look on, on his exposure, on his nakedness. Thanks, buddy. They honored him. They respect him. They covered him. They covered him with grace. Their dad had a weak and embarrassing moment. And you know, I'm grateful this story's in there because Noah is not a superhero. He's not a perfect guy. He blew it and he was in an embarrassing situation. But two of his sons so understood the power of grace that they were going to honor and cover their father in his shame and weakness. But Ham didn't get it. Ham mocked and dishonored his father. And I believe this story ends like this for a reason. It's a warning. It's even a little bit of a self-check. Because see, here, here's the thing. If I am truly receiving and understanding and living in the grace of God, I will find myself giving it away to other people. But if I find myself harsh, judging, judgmental, quick to point out the flaws and errors of other, others, that should be a major red flag to say, have I really understood and received the grace of God? I mean, Ham was on that ark and he was on that ark because his father built it. Noah wasn't perfect. His dad wasn't perfect, but his dad saw him through. I, I want to give a couple of tangible examples to this. Um, young people in the room, young people in the room, for some very good reasons, there are a lot of youth in our country that are rejecting the church. They're seeing flaws and errors in it, and the tendency is just to leave it. 
And the tendency is just to call it out and mock it and say, look how they're blowing it. If you and I have faith in Jesus right here today, it is because of a generation that has gone before us, that has passed that legacy on. And we have to understand something. We're connected. If Ham's mocking his father, he's mocking himself. That's his family. Now, the other two didn't leave him laying there. They're like, we got to deal with this situation. But they did it carefully and respectfully and in love. It would be easy to just run away and mock. But it would be awesome if we would recognize that we are all a part of the family of God. And if I, if I truly understand my connection to something and have love for it, I will want to be a part of the solution. I'm not talking about pretending like there's nothing wrong that needs to change. I'm saying, let's be bold enough in our day, in our generation to say, I want to be a part of seeing this thing turn around. And I love it enough that I'm not going to run away from it. Man, I hope that'll happen in our generation. Y'all can do it. We are the church. Let's love it enough, not to pretend like there aren't things that need to change, but let's love it enough to hang in there and be a part of helping it grow. Because Jesus told us, he said, the, the same measure you use to judge will be measured on you. And if I'm not careful in my calling out and mocking of what I disagree with and see broken and wrong, I'm going to experience that same thing back on me one day. Let's not live like that. Let's embrace the grace of God. Similarly, parents, you know, if we're not careful, we can have a tendency to look at things that we didn't enjoy about our childhood and swing way over in an opposite direction and overcorrect and parent to be the opposite of what I didn't like that my parents did. And my parenting becomes just a response to what I disliked. Instead of saying, hey, here's some good stuff that I got from my earthly father and mother, and here's some stuff that Jesus offers and extends to me by his grace to help me maybe be a better father or mother than they were, or at least be the father and mother I'm supposed to be to these kids today. Let, let's not swing opposite directions. Let's walk by the grace of God and be who he's called us to be. Is this making sense? These are just a couple of examples I was thinking of this week, but let's, let's be careful that we aren't so quick to call out the errors and the mistakes of others and throw stones from a distance and mock. Love covers a multitude of sins. Let's receive the grace of God and let's give it away. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your grace and for the new life that we have in you. Jesus, I thank you for the miracle of your resurrection. Lord, I pray I would never get so familiar with that or calloused with it that I'm not amazed by it and thankful for the promise that is in your resurrection. God, that I get to live eternally and be at peace with you. God, I thank you that your grace is rooted in your ultimate sacrifice on my behalf. God, I thank you that your grace is rooted in your promise and that, God, I can live this life worshiping you and going on this grand adventure with you, living by your grace, receiving it in my life and giving it away to others. God, I pray you do business with us this morning. Lord, the good news is we don't have to stay in any sort of guilt or shame if, if we see some of this mocking in our life. But God, we can acknowledge it. We can humble ourselves like we talked about last week. 
We can come to you once again for grace and mercy in our time of need and ask you to give us the grace that we need to show that to others. God, we love you. We worship you together this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.